This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Most parents do everything they can to ensure that their children succeed as adults. Whether they're booking them in multiple activities a week or endlessly quizzing them on math and language questions or taking over science fair projects, parents are going to increasingly great lengths to set their children up for success. But in the world that's changing at warp speed, our kids are going to need to navigate a path to success without a roadmap. Now, that's something that entrepreneurs do every day. So what if we looked at the world of entrepreneurship, in addition to child development, for insights on helping kids gain the skills that they'll need in order to prosper personally and professionally? In this part of today's show, our guest is going to be talking to us about the link between the essential qualities that make great entrepreneurs tick and what we know about how children learn and grow. And he's going to show us some proven ways to raise kids who embrace the uncertain, challenging adventure that is growing up in today's and tomorrow's changing world. We'll also be talking about the skills that are necessary to succeed in the 21st century world and what we can do to nurture those qualities. I think it's a very unique perspective, and I think it's one that might also help us future-proof our kids as we're in the process of trying to set them up for success, but on their own terms. We'll jump into the link between entrepreneurship and parenting when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad. Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Looking for the best all-you-can-eat buffet for only $1.99? Come to Big Ed's Chow House. But if you're looking for Big Ed, don't come to Big Ed's Chow House. Big Ed passed away last week at 47, leaving his wife and children struck down in his prime by the same disease that got his father. So he won't be around for his family. And sadly, it could have been detected early with a simple test. But Big Ed didn't get it. Have you gotten the medical test you need? For a list of tests every man should have, go to AHRQ.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brandt, and my guest for this part of today's show is Richard Rendy, who is the co-author of Raising Can-Do Kids, Giving Children the Tools to Thrive in a Fast-Changing World. Richard, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Armin. Thanks for having me on. I want you to go through a little bit, and we'll talk about this obviously in much more detail, but just the, the high-level idea of how entrepreneurial skills can be used as parenting advice. Sure thing. So I think the, the, the big picture here is that we've got a, a parenting culture and a child-rearing culture that's consumed with the idea of raising kids to be successful, right? Not and a bad I think idea. we're going about it in the wrong way. And when we think about what traits kids are going to really need to be successful in a future that I think a lot of people predict is going to be somewhat uncertain for them uh, with a lot of unpredictables. Um, it's not necessarily the kinds of skills that we always talk about or necessarily prize, but um, when we look at it both as from the developmental psychology literature and the idea of looking at entrepreneurs who are very good at handling uncertain 
uncertainty and surviving and thriving in that kind of environment. That's kind of where we, we started to dig in and think that this could be valuable for, for parents. Okay, and so you you wrote it up. So you are kind of the, the parenting side of things, the developmental psychologist, and the co-author, Jen, seems to be a little more on the business side. Is that how you happen? Is that right? That's, exact, that's exactly right. So it was it was sort of an you know it was an interesting exercise that ended up teaching me a lot as a developmentalist I think when we thought about entrepreneurial people and and what we can learn from them. No, I think it's a fascinating idea. I mean, I've talked over the years about how parenting skills can be used in the workplace, generally speaking, about you know being tolerant to people's mistakes and things like that that you learn as a parent, but also it works the other way that you can take business skills and put them into into the home, the the idea of having a backup plan, a plan B or plan C, which is more of a businessy idea than a than a home idea. But so this this idea of entrepreneurial skills, I think, is really is really fascinating. And you're talking about how we're we're essentially wired for this. To yeah, I I think when we look, uh, Armin, at, at, at you know a lot of we, we we identified a bunch of traits that we thought both uh, entrepreneurs typically have, and also are evident in childhood. Um, and for a lot of them, you really see that kids are inclined to do these things. So, for example, um, when you talk about entrepreneurs, one thing that comes to mind is that they tend to be innovative. And we're not talking necessarily about, you know, a Steve Jobs kind of kind of deal. We mean on a daily basis. That's what a lot of folks in business talk about these days. There's real, you know, critical thinking, problem-solving, innovation in terms of how do you how do you think through issues? How do you come up with creative solutions? And, you know, you look through the, the literature on, on the cognitive development of two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, when given the right opportunities, man, they are, they are wired to do those things. I mean, they're, it's, it's fascinating to learn what they're capable of. Um, and we, can, we go down the line and we see this for social skills. We talk about how kids are when given the chance again, even toddlers are natural helpers. They have a natural inclination to help you and collaborate and do all these sorts of things. Um, you know, so there's a bunch of, of of these kinds of traits that, in essence, I think kids are inclined to do. And a lot of the pressures in our culture, I think, lead to uh, parenting strategies that don't necessarily pull yeah. for them, and sometimes they, you know, override them. You know, I'm kind of, as you're saying this, wondering a little bit, of, again, about whether it works the other way, because I've done a lot of books with people who are entrepreneurs and innovators, and they talk a lot about the whole process, and, and a lot of it has to do with making a bunch of mistakes and getting comfortable yeah. with that. You think about yeah. a, a toddler learning how to walk. I mean, they'd never learn how to walk if they didn't learn how to crawl first, and of course, they in the in-between time, how many hundreds and hundreds of times do they fall down? Right. And, you know, think about that as a business thing that, you know, they're making a mistake. It didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. And all of a sudden, uh, you invent the light bulb, you know. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we, we you know, there's been a, a good amount of, of, of talk about that, broadly speaking, uh, about how kids need to learn to fail and, and all those sorts of things. And, and I think it's critical. But I think the point you're making, which is in line with the point we're making, is, you know, it's not just about accepting failure, but it's really to learn how to learn from experience, right? And that's what the entrepreneurs are really good at. They, John Jacobs, who co-founded Life is Good, 
uh, you know, the, the clothing company that's sort of branded on optimism. Uh, we talked to him for the book, and, and he talked about how, you know, folks like him, um, there's two things that happen. Either you try something and it works, or you try something and you learn something. And there isn't anything about, about failure embedded in that, right? You're, you're attuned to experiencing things, and I think even when we dial back to, you know, what I was saying before about how sophisticated toddlers are, um, they are kind of wired for this trial and error kind of thing, right? They're, 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 they know how to explore and how to manipulate, how to do this, do that, see what happens. And if we intrude too much and impose these, these sorts of critiques on them or assessments or intervene too much, we, we interfere with that natural tendency they have um, to be almost entrepreneurial in that cognitive sense. You know, you talk about Steve Jobs, and I was thinking about, wanted to get your idea, uh, your take on this whole thing about technology, and I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on it, but just, you know, you think about Steve Jobs and then Wozniak, Mm -hmm. Steve being out there constantly and being in the public eye and being extremely social when he was not being a jerk, and Woz being somebody who kind of holed up in the garage, and and you rarely hear from him now. He's got a radio show, but before that, you hadn't heard from him for 10 years. And I'm wondering about whether all this technology is going to keep kids from making the social interactions that they need to be making. Well, I I think, you know, it's it's technology and beyond technology, Armin, the way I see it. I mean, I think if if you're too embedded in technology um, in the sense that it becomes solitary, um, I, I do think we, we start to lose the opportunity to cultivate those social skills. But I would say, uh, along with that, you know, it's, it, it's not just the, the technology. It's also if kids are just spending way too much time, you know, doing homework or, uh, you know, being so structured in their, in their activities. Um, so whether it's, it's sort of, you know, I don't want to say self-imposed, but, you know, driven by, by, you know, being so consumed with whatever device you have, but it's these other things, too. Be, you know, we, we're seeing studies. We talked about them in the book. Um, another one was published pretty recently, how social skills in early childhood, they do these longitudinal studies. They follow kids for 20-plus you know, years. Um, it's what anybody in, in business knows. Just having good, solid, basic social skills um, is predictive of a lot of good things, but it's not the sort of thing that as a, as a culture we're, we're sitting there thinking about, gosh, you know what, it's okay to do all your technology, but make sure you're getting in that playtime and learning how to play well with others. Well, we're so enchanted by the YouTube videos of the nine-month-old sitting and swiping on, yep. on, on an iPad. So it's yep. funny, and it's entertaining, but we aren't really realizing. I actually w- read a study I thought was just fascinating about looking at the other side of that, which is that developmental people are, are finding that some of these kids have poor muscle tone and poor hand-eye yeah. coordination because yeah. of exactly that. They're swiping and doing stuff, and they're not building the tower. They're building a picture of a tower, but right. they, you know, they aren't building an actual tower that's going to teach them about gravity and consequences. Absolutely. I mean, we, we, we got into that as well. And, you know, it's, it's funny. It's what, what, you know, a lot of us grew up doing, right, when we were kids, was this very hands-on stuff. Um, and I think, you know, there's an old and new to it. The old is, is that we've always known developmentally that that's how kids learn. And, you know, there's, there's, and you just said it, 
beautifully, right? You, you, you manipulate the environment, you, and it leads to all kinds of cognitive revelations. Right? You learn about three dimensions. You learn about gravity. You learn about spatial orientation. We're just, you know, these are just examples. Um, but a lot of the new science really keeps reinforcing that, uh, you know, down to the level of neuroscientists are, are realizing the cerebellum you know, which is the motor control center, really has aspects to it in an anatomical sense that are devoted to cognition, right? So we really do learn from all these these things. And, you know, there's so many dimensions to it, but I'll just briefly flag two because I think you've brought up a really important issue. Richard, we're going to take a quick break, and we can pick up on that as soon as we get back. I'm talking with Richard Rendy, who's the co-author of Raising Can-Do Kids, Giving Children the Tools to Thrive in a Fast-Changing World. And as I said, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking about those two ideas. Okay, forest animals, kids are coming to the forest, and it's up to us to make their visit a good one. Sparrow, have you practiced the most popular bird songs for the year? Of course. Catchy. I like it. River, how's the temperature? It's a refreshing 52 degrees, man. I love it. Uh, Turtle. He's not here yet, man. Uh, He's late every morning. Okay. Squirrel. The forest has been preparing just for you. To learn more about cool things to do in the forest, visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Richard Rendy, who's the co-author with Jen Prosek of Raising Can-Do Kids, Giving Children the Tools to Thrive in a Fast-Changing World. And I just had to stop you there, but please do tell us about the two things. Okay, so you know, the first thing is we, the new science keeps showing us how important uh, using your hands and, and well, motor skills are for cognitive development. You mentioned, you know, babies, kids that are spending too much time swiping devices, they're not developing those skills. There's there's two concerns. There's this bigger, broader concern that you're not going to get all of these cognitive development, cognitive uh, benefits that you get from physically manipulating your world. But there's also things like, for example, you know, to, to when you start school age, I mean, you're not always on a screen, you're still going to be, for example, manipulating a writing instrument. You need those, those things need to be automated, right? So if you're learning how to write letters or write your name, um, you don't want your attention to be devoted as a, you know, young kid to how do I hold my pencil, right? It's supposed to be focused on this big, bigger thing that you're learning letters. Um, so, you know, I'm not one that says, you know, we have to completely eliminate anything about modern culture. You know, kids grow up in their cultures. But I do think we have to be, first of all, mindful that kids can't spend too much time on the technology for lots of reasons. And we also have to be aware of what are those things that are missing because of that and how do we get them back into kids' lives and and understand that those things are probably a lot more sophisticated than what it looks like a kid can be doing, you know, on a on a smartphone. Yeah, there's a lot of people now who are, com- I guess, they're building themselves, and we are building them as social entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. 
not in the social media sense, but they're doing the right thing, that kind of thing, and they're they're yeah. doing well by doing good is a, another way you hear yeah. it put sometimes. And I think that that's a relatively recent phenomenon. I mean, there were always people who were you know, make a ton of money and then they would be ter- terrific philanthropists, but they generally wouldn't start their company with the idea of creating some, uh, making the world a better place. But you talk about that as one of the important skills, the uh, the idea to serve others. And how talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me in, in talking to entrepreneurs across different fields is that, uh, you know, at the, the bottom line is if you're going to be successful in, in doing something, typically it's because it's of value to somebody else, right? Just in a fundamental sense people listen to your radio show because they're getting something out of it that's enriching your life their lives and i think you know what we've seen now is is a, a bit of a morphing as you said a more recent thing which is a nice trend for entrepreneurs to make that their mission but even if you step back from that if you're creating some kind of product or service fundamentally it has to have some value to others so we kind of take it at, at both levels in the sense that, you know, it's, it's in the in the world that kids are going to be entering in, at some point to be successful, it, it's it's good to keep in mind that you're going to be successful because you're providing something to somebody else. And then there's this whole other layer of how having that orientation um, actually leads to all kinds of cascades that end up making you more and more successful. I'm sure you're familiar with Adam Grant's work about givers and takers and all that stuff and how people who are givers end up doing, you know, extremely well. You think you need to be all about yourself, but really if you're oriented towards towards others, um, you know, as, as human beings, it's nice to say we're doing that because we want to do for others, and I think that's totally true. But even if you want to just say at the level of producing a successful adult, knowing that how you're going to help somebody out, um, I don't care if you're a musician creating your music, if you're a physician, if you have part of your mission saying, I'm here to make somebody's life better, I think that translates into making who you are better, but also translates into making you more successful at what you're doing. I'm wondering if you're including gratitude in there, because that's another thing that's it's a relatively recent phenomenon, and not the gratitude itself, of course, but the idea that that can actually help the people who are who have gratitude, who feel that way, and who keep track of it, actually are more successful in, in many ways. A- absolutely. And, you know, it's, it, it's funny because gratitude came up um, across a number of the entrepreneurs we talked to for, for the book, and it came across in, in a number of domains. So um, gratitude came, came up when we were talking to entrepreneurs about optimism. You know, there's this thing about if you step back and, and you go through this exercise of thinking through in a real way, what am I grateful for today? You know, what's going on that's good? That gives you positive fuel no matter what else is going on to say I've got some platform here that I can lean on that's going to help me take on whatever challenges are going on. I think it also helps ground you, as I think you're suggesting, um, in a way of, of, of understanding that you do have a lot of support out there for you if you pay attention to it. And 
uh, I mentioned John Jacobs before, and I'm going to mention him again because he he was really all over this. You know, it's that they you can sustain yourself through hard times when you at least hang on to those threads of of knowing that there are are things out there that are are going your way and people who are who are supporting you, and I think that also gives you a little bit of a platform socially to understand that um, you can you can count on people and utilize those resources. These are all these kinds of skills that – can I, can I continue this for a second to just give you yeah, go a, right ahead, kind of a cool sure. example? Yeah. Um, you know, in, in education, I think about a year or so ago, there was some talk that, that Princeton wanted to revisit its grading policy, which they had been known for having this really kind of strict um, – quota system of how many kids could get an A in a class, right? And what they were starting to find is that kids' natural tendency to want to help each other out, which, you know, also goes into the gratitude thing, right? You have friends, you're grateful that you that you have them, and part of the deal is that you're going to help each other out. It gets undermined if you're going to have this, like, really arbitrary draconian system that says, let's say, only 35% of kids are going to get an A, because it's going to start making you think, well, if I help out my friend, no, I want to help out I'm my I'm hurting friend, myself. Gosh, yeah. Now, maybe the friend's going to get the A now, and I'm not. Right, right. And, and I think, you know, these, these things get a little, um, in, in, in an interesting way, they get really embedded that you want this culture of everybody helping everybody, everybody supporting each other, having in place this idea of gratitude, um, because it, it, it reminds you that there are things you can lean on. Um, and we don't want to kill off all those things because, you know, there's no there's no quota system in life that says only 35% of kids are going to be successful. I mean, everybody should be successful at what they're doing. And these this sort of social nature is important for that. So, Richard, we're kind of, kind of coming up on the end of the show, but I want to sum this all up for us. I mean, we've got a really good sense of what the various skills are, the entrepreneurial skills, and how those belong in, in in the home, in your parenting strategy, but how do you actually implement those things as a parent? Right. So what we, we focus in the book on a lot of, of very practical, take-home kinds of messages supported by research. But now let's just sit on a couple of them. Don't forget about the importance of face-to-face play and interaction and conversation with your child. We go through benefits of those through, throughout the book. Um, remembering the importance of how you really help your kids develop their cognitive skills through particular types of play and how you encourage that. Um, instilling optimism, uh, modeling that as a parent, uh, giving them that sense of failure isn't failure. Failure is part of experience and learning how to get out of that mindset and get kids to embrace that stuff. Um, how to work hard, how to do chore, how to get kids to do chores, but in in ways that they're really going to learn from it and grow from it, something that's being you know eliminated in, in our, our current uh, generations of kids. And all of these kinds of things about how to cultivate social skills, how to talk about emotions, how to, how to promote conversations, how to manage conflicts, how to be attuned to the needs of others. So we kind of go through all of these things. The big, big take-home message is that we're so consumed with kids' success, we're losing sight of the fact that all of these things are really foundations for their later success. 
all those other things you do in a kid's life are, are important, but you can't squeeze these things out. And I would argue these things trump everything else. I really do believe that. I think in, over the long haul, you give kids all of these other skills, then they'll be positioned to take advantage of all the opportunities you try to provide right. for them. My guest has been Richard Rendy, the author of Raising Can-Do Kids, Giving Children the Tools to Thrive in a Fast-Changing World. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Herman. I appreciate it. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. You must be your fairy godmother. Yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Many parents miss the important step of booster seats. Maybe you better explain things to him. Booster seats raise your child up so that a safety belt designed for adults will fit and protect them properly. Oh. That does make a difference. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number. And get your little pumpkin there safely <laughs> in a booster seat. Hop in, my dear. Oh, thank you. And like Cinderella, you can live happily ever after. It's like a dream. A wonderful dream come true. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. I want to jump right into today's Ask Mr. Dad question because it deals with something I think people don't talk about enough, and that's volunteering. Dear Mr. Dad, I have to admit that my wife and I have been a bit self-centered in our adult lives, focusing on our work and earning money and supporting the family. We've done quite well financially, and we both decided that we should start giving something back to our community. We want to get our kids involved, too, but they're pretty young, only five and seven. Honestly, I don't even know where to start. Are the kids too young, and what's the best way to get going? Well, let's start with this one. The kids are definitely not too young to volunteer in their community. In fact, I don't really think that there is such a thing as too young. Plenty of people bring babies to visit nursing home residents or shut-ins, and preschoolers and elementary kids often go on field trips to the same places to sing holiday songs or put on a play or just draw pictures. Bringing a smile to the face of people who don't have a lot of joy in their lives I think is a wonderful gift. Middle schoolers can volunteer to read to a blind person, tutor kids their own age in reading and math, and teens can coach inner-city sports teams or build houses with Habitat for Humanity. Ideally, volunteering is a selfless act. You do it to help someone else, not because you'll profit from it. But thinking way into the future, volunteering also looks good on college and job applications. I hate to put it in those terms, but sometimes you got to think a little bit ahead. Doing things as simple as serving meals at a local homeless shelter or, when the kids are older, delivering meals on wheels shows your children that you're walking the walk instead of just talking the talk. Of course, volunteering often gives kids some insight into just how lucky they are. It can also provide opportunities for them to learn about problem solving and cooperation, for them to hone new skills and to discover talents and interests and skills they never even knew they had. 
Perhaps most importantly, though, it teaches them to be more tolerant of people they might never come in contact with otherwise, people from different cultures or ethnicities or education levels or socioeconomic status. At the end of the day, or just even at the end of a few hours, volunteering, you'll discover that your family has benefited as much as the community has, although in very different ways. As you consider which of the millions of opportunities to get your family involved in, here are a few ideas you might want to keep in mind. Start in your own backyard. Your church or synagogue probably has a social action committee. Join it. Look inside. There's no better way to pass your values on to your children than by getting involved in an organization that works with issues that you care strongly about. If you need some suggestions, you can visit unitedway.org or volunteermatch.org. Ask the kids. Kids have big hearts, you know. Letting them pick whom or what they want to help will make them that much more committed. Get ready to learn. Some volunteer opportunities, like being a reading tutor or removing non-native plants from a local marsh, may require you to get trained before you can start working. Think about staying home. There are plenty of ways to volunteer that don't involve actually leaving the house. Things like assembling care packages for veterans, translating documents for refugees, building websites for nonprofits, and fostering abused pets. Don't go overboard. Start slowly and increase the amount of hours you contribute as you can. Making commitments you can't keep will frustrate you and sets a bad example for the kids. And because organizations count on their volunteers, you could inadvertently hurt the people you're trying to help. If you've got a comment or question for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it. You can do that through our website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another Ask Mr. Dad column or a Parents at Play column. Hey, but don't go anywhere quite yet because, as you know, there's a lot more Positive Parenting coming right up. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? How's that cook? How do you change the ringtone? How much does this cost? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life, except... Any questions? Um, no. At the doctor's office, ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? Questions lead to better health care. Go to ahrq.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more on our website, yougottobekidding.org. Visit yougottobekidding.org today. Welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, founder of MrDad.com, and I want to thank you very much for sticking with us. It's great to have you. Raising a child who struggles with mental health issues or addictions or depression or suicidal thoughts or eating disorders or just the normal angst that's associated with growing up can be frightening and overwhelming. Every day, you face heartbreaking decisions. To truly support your child, You've got to be right there with them, hurting with them and acknowledging them. But you also need to model independence. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with a therapist and a parent educator who has helped thousands of families replace their anxiety and confusion with clarity and insight and empowerment. He's a guy who uses his extensive experience as a wilderness therapist where modern conveniences and distractions are stripped away to provide a way for parents and kids to affect positive change in their own behavior. Some of the lessons we're going to learn are simple and straight to the point, like 
giving your child the space to feel and express his own emotions, recognizing that you don't have to get everything perfectly right as a parent, and breaking free from guilt in order to set healthy boundaries. And perhaps most importantly, how to avoid threatening or intimidating your child into doing the right thing, which isn't going to happen anyway. I'm Armin Braun. We'll jump into all this and a lot more when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. There once was a boy wizard whose name was Larry Smarter. Larry, why weren't you in Professor Dinky Doodle's mythical creature classification class? Well, I'm taking Algebra 2 in a foreign language. Oh, so you can talk to unicorns? <laughs> uh, exactly. Unless they're French. Larry wanted to go to college, so he visited knowhowtogo.org to find the classes he really needed. Getting into college doesn't happen magically. Learn more at knowhowtogo.org. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Brad Reedy, who's the author of The Journey of the Heroic Parent, Your Child's Struggle and the Road Home. Brad, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, have you set the stage for us a little bit. What's heroic about this particular type of parent, and what's the child's struggle? Yeah, I think that the title, sometimes people might misunderstand it, because the idea of heroic parenting, I, I borrowed it from... Joseph Campbell, the philosopher's idea of the hero's journey. And, and the hero, in, in every story, in every epic, every myth, as Joseph describes, is, really goes on, a, on an inward journey, looking at himself or herself and finding a deeper, more authentic version of themselves. And, and they usually go through something difficult, something painful, something that tries and stretches and, and transforms them. So for me, the idea of a heroic parent is somebody who does the hard work of asking themselves difficult questions, learning how to feel, learning how to walk into at times therapy sessions or into programs, into meetings, and really expose themselves to a, a real vulnerable and ultimately a courageous process. And the the journey that's going on is dealing with a child with mental illness. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that's where my stories come from. That's my background. But, but really, since I identify that the most important question that, that you ask yourself when you're dealing with a tr- child who's struggling with mental health or addictions is not what do I do with this child. That, that's the question that parents come to me with. But the real question is who am I? You know, what's my authentic self? And then from there, I can get more clear on my child and I can get more clear on my relationship with them and my relationship with their problems. So although the background and the context is dealing with children who are struggling, it really does have application to all of our relationships. And the parents who I work with who really get a lot out of it and really embrace it will come back to me and say, it's changed my work relationships, my, my relationship with my parents, my friend, my peer, my partner relationships. So it's really, you know, the, the key to, to doing this heroic journey, to embarking on this heroic journey is self-discovery, and that has application to all of our relationships. Well, how do you begin that process? Usually you're shoved into it <laughs> in the case that I, I work with because a child is struggling. And a lot of people won't do this kind of work unless it's, required of them unless they think they're going in, in this case to go after to save their child so a lot of times it comes comes to us in a crisis most of our growing most of my growing i know has come when i've been when something difficult has happened so there's this invitation 
into a, to a deeper process because we're not cruising along anymore. And then we learn to ask ourselves, we learn to allow ourselves to be asked different questions, and that can be by a mentor, by a therapist, if you have a trusted friend who's farther along down the journey. So walking into a therapy session, walking into an Al-Anon meeting, walking into an AA meeting with your child or, or, or for your child to learn about your child, reading a book, um, you know, attending seminars. We, we go to places that we wouldn't normally want to go that we would never imagine ourselves signing up for, but we do it because we think we're out there to save our child. And of course, in the end, we end up saving ourselves. And that transformation can have a wonderful impact on our children. Well, I'm curious about how the process goes a little bit. I mean, what sorts of things? Of course, we're not going to go through an entire therapy session, right. probably. But how do you begin to help get parents on the path where they can discover what the issues are for themselves? You know, for me, I run a, a therapeutic wilderness program set out in the outdoors, kind of like an outward bound with therapy. Ours is called Evoke Therapy Programs. And so the way that it looks like for me is I have a child in the program who's been admitted because of drug issues or mental health issues, and then I'm on the phone with the parent, and they say, now, what do we do? What do I say to him this week? What do I say to her this week? Where do we go next? So it always comes up in the context of them saying, what's the next thing to do? What, what, what should I write? Should I write a confrontive letter? Should I write a loving letter? And so my process with them is saying, it's never about what to do. It's about why you're doing it. So I say, so why do you want to write this really soft letter to your child? Are you apologizing? Is there guilt there? Is there something in your childhood that's not resolved where you're still resentful unconsciously of your parents and so you're trying to resolve that through your child? Are you over-identifying with your child in this case where you're trying to take care of their feelings and be responsible for their feelings? Are you trying to control their feelings and manage it? So it, it comes in the context of, of a dialogue with me as a therapist where people are asking what to do in a given situation and instead of me giving advice, which I almost never try to do, I'll say, well, what do you want to, what do you want to, what are you trying to accomplish, and what's getting in the way of you finding out your truth? Because I believe the truth is in there; it's just being blocked by shame and fear and guilt and in our efforts to control things. And so, it's my job to ask the kind of questions like, "Where's it coming? Why do you want to ch tell your child how you're feeling? Are you trying to get them to feel guilty? Mm -hmm. Do you want to get them to feel obligated to you? Um, let's talk about that." And so, it's always about asking the parent in this case questions about where it's coming from, what's right. the history, and really unpacking it. So how often do you have people say, oh, for God's sake, just, <laughs> you know, just tell me what to say? Five times an hour on a given phone call or a given <laughs> session, at least. Okay, okay. And so I want to make sure that I'm not the only one who's, who's kind of thinking that a little bit as you're talking. Right. I, I understand where you're going, but I mean, I can see that there's, there's got to be some frustration. I mean, yeah. if you have a child with mental illness who's to the point where they've been admitted to some sort of a program, right. I mean, you know, you, you just, it's enough already. You, you, you want to just move on and, and fix it. You know, and I, I think that one of the, that's true, and people do get frustrated with the process sometimes, and I'm very gentle with the process because although they're not my primary client, the child is, they're a child too. You know, they come with their history, their unique history, which has, has formed their personality. So I'm, I'm really patient with them, and as a father for myself, I know how hard it is. I know how hard it is every day to do the right thing. So I'm, I'm really patient and loving with them and, and really understanding that anything that, that blocks them is a wound. And so it's, it's, very, it's a very gentle process yeah. with me for them, for sure. I would imagine that some of the resistance it maybe comes from some kind of an intuitive knowledge that they may, or that, that they may have done something to cause the problems. Yeah, they, they come 
often with that idea, that, that sense of guilt or obligation. And sometimes it's something like a divorce, right? It could be, or a father who knows he's been putting his job first and, and, and in front of his family in a lot of ways, or a mother who nags, or a father who yells. So there's a lot of that, that either chronic or acute you know, behavior in a parent that they acknowledge. And so I definitely try to take away the guilt and say, there, there have been things that you've done to hurt your child and that have affected your child. And that's true of every single parent. And we're not going to dwell on that. We're going to work on doing the best you can. And the best thing that you can do with your child is not to apologize and, and, and fear to hold them accountable because you've hurt them, but to do your own work. That's what your child needs is for you to make your life and your growth a project, not their life and their growth a project, but your life and your growth a project. Now, you talk about don't trust experts, become one yourself. Right. Experts in what? You know, see, this is the way that this comes from analytic theory in some ways where I'm not an expert. I'm a therapist. I'm a marriage and family therapist, but I'm not an expert on your life. You know, I mean, I can't tell you what to do. And most of the stuff that I've learned in my life that's valuable has been from my mistakes anyway. So I wouldn't want to rob anybody of that journey. So what I say is that therapists are not experts in telling you the truth. They're experts in creating a process where you can find, find the truth, find your truth that's buried beneath guilt and fear primarily. So you can help somebody understand what's blocking their wisdom, what's blocking access to that insight that is, is healing for them and for their family. And so that's the process of, of therapy. And I think most people, the average layperson, might imagine that a therapist's job or expertise is giving advice. And I know a lot of therapists, and that's certainly not true. Well, I think, I mean, I remember as, as a kid going to therapy for various kinds of things that my parents were sending me, and I, I developed this attitude somehow that therapists should be like mechanics. Right. You know, you, you back your car in, you op pop open the hood and say, it's making this funny noise, fix it. Right. And, you know, but that's obviously un an unrealistic thing, since the right. fixing has to be done by the person who's there. Yeah. But, yeah, it's... You can get a lot out of therapy with a very average therapist if you're doing your work. And most of the work happens between sessions. That, that therapy becomes, that session becomes the anchor, kind of the right angle that you can true yourself up to because you go in there to find yourself, ideally, if you have a decent therapist. But as I've learned in my life, and I've been to therapy most of my life, have been with my current therapist for 16 years now, the most important work that happens is the stuff that happens right when I walk out of her office and before I come in the next time. You know, just curious about the whole process with, with this. Do you suggest that people take notes and that they review the notes? Because I think so many people, you go to therapy, you come out, and that's it, and you just come back next week. But you don't really have homework assignments. Right, right. You know, this is going to be very similar to my session. I don't, I don't have an opinion on whether they should take notes. It doesn't work for me to take notes. I've had people take notes. I think some people learn that way and retain information that way. So if they want to do that, that's fine. But for me, it, you know, it takes a while, to, especially in therapy, to, to experience what therapy is, which is a, it's a vulnerable process where you walk in, and it takes time for all of us, myself included, to expose yourself enough to be seen. And then you have this reparative experience where you're seen and heard and cared for and not judged, and that's different than most of our childhoods. And so we have this reparative experience where we're just okay. My therapist says, your horrible rotten self is okay and, and welcome here, and then and then I and then through that process of self-love and self-acceptance, I can see parts of myself that were hidden behind shame and fear and guilt, and I can heal myself because all of my symptoms come from wounds. And once I can see the symptoms and embrace them and, and, and love myself, 
then the healing comes after that. I'm talking with Brad Reedy, who's the author of The Journey of the Heroic Parent, Your Child's Struggle and the Road Home. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Brad. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Brad Reedy, who's the author of The Journey of the Heroic Parent, Your Child's Struggle, and the Road Home. So want to go on a little bit, and you know, this is going to be some, we'll have to just sort of take your word on this, that you know, once you're able to get the parents to the point where they can understand themselves a little bit better, then there still is some work or some, some interactions that need to be done with them and the child. How do you begin to assess what that is? You know, one thing that we have to our advantage is uh, it's actually wonderful, and it wasn't created intentionally, but in our program, the parents and the children write letters to each other. And that's an amazing ver- version of family therapy because you can really slow it down. So I'll go over a letter with a parent, and, and I can see in it, I can, that's my job, I can see what they're trying to suggest or what they're, what they're trying to express, or if I can't, I'll ask questions about it and say, Why, what, what, what's this in here, and what are you trying to say here? And then I coach them through a different way of responding. And that's, it's, uh, letter writing therapy is so much more deliberate than talking therapy because you're, it's, it's happening so quickly in real time. You say to a client, hey, what you just said there, and they'll say, well, I didn't mean that. But in, on paper, you can really take your time. And most of what I'm also coaching parents to do is to listen, to, to hear their children, and then to hold boundaries in the face of their own fears of being rejected themselves or their child hating them or not liking them or not forgiving them, and then let that do the teaching because most parents want to lecture, nag, threaten, coerce. They want to do all that stuff to change, change their child instead of setting boundaries and understanding their child simultaneously. Now let's talk a little bit about control versus influence. I think that that's one of the chapters in the book, and I think right. it's something that a lot of parents struggle with, that how, how little control we have, and except when they're tiny. And how how much influence we have, which is a, a disappearing amount, I think, over time. But how do you get parents to understand that? Because that's that's a critical message that we need to get. There, there's a few principles that I teach them. One thing I say is, parenting education is not for changing children, but for changing parents. And that change can then have a wonderful effect on children. And, and most of our control comes from fear, and most of it comes through emotional coercion. So what I teach parents is. You can listen better. You can be more assertive. You can be more authentic. You can uh, lose your temper a little less. We can talk about all of that. But ultimately, you have to let go of the outcome to be effective, to be influential. And I'll tell you this. I also teach that most permissive parents are controlling. Most permissive parents who have problems with boundaries are trying to coerce, they're trying to guilt, they're trying to nag, they're trying to pester, blame, intimidate, lecture, debate, all those things to get their child to do something instead of saying, here's the boundary. I'm scared that you're not going to do what I want you to do, what, what I think you need to do, but I'm going to be clear about this thing that is me. I'm going to do my thing over here. I'm going to be as clear as I can, and then you get to choose, and then I have to do the, one of the scariest things in the whole process, which is follow through with the consequences. So 
we kind of help parents along each of those steps so that they're focusing always on their part of the process and letting go of the child's outcome and definitely not trying to use emotional intensity and coercion to try to get their child to do, do things, which, like I said, most permissive parents do try to do. What's the, the hardest part for you of this process? I think at times uh, my own control gets triggered. I think at times, I mean, all of my own stuff gets into it all the time. All of my own my own want for things to go the right way, especially when I'm seeing a, a, ch- a young child, you know, a teenager or a young adult suffering, and I see a parent struggling to parent effectively, and I'll get frustrated with them. And I think for me, that impatience is, is really just judgment. You know, I have, I have complicated language to, to use to, to hide the derision and judgment, but that's when I know I'm off course. And when I do supervision with all of our therapists, I'll say to them, almost every time when they're stuck on a case, it's almost always about a parent getting in the way, quote unquote, with what they want to do in therapy. And so I say, if this was a child and you were treating a child, this parent that you're struggling with, how would you talk to them? What would you say to them? And so I myself get caught in that all the time, getting impatient with, 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 with the wounds and the symptoms of parents that are getting in the way of my agenda, which again, is just replicating what's happening with the parent and the child relationship. So that's, that's probably the hardest thing that I encounter on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned at the very beginning that you're really not dealing with the parents, you know, that they aren't your patients, that it's the kids right. themselves who are the patients. Are you putting them through a similar kind of a process of discovering who you are and, and what your motivations are? Yeah, yeah, and, and they're, they're easier because they're immersed in the culture, right? They're in our program, living in it, and so it's happening all day long in every interaction. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, they're easier to deal with, and parents are dealing with day-to-day life, which, as we all know, is really, really challenging. You know, and, and I have parents that are very successful in business, and what works in business doesn't work with children, and children are there to remind you of that if you forget it. So we're definitely – I say the same thing to, to parents that I do to children, which is don't worry about them changing because children are complaining about parents as much as parents are complaining about children. My response is – and I use this language. There's this piece in the book that I talk about being an idiot – to say, so everybody in your life is going to be an idiot, and what are you going to do about it? That's not an unempathic statement. It's just turning them back into what's your piece of it? What can you control? What's your side of the street? What's your project in life? Instead of thinking, I'm going to do this right so that I can, or do this thing so that I can change the other person. So it's a, it's a very, very parallel process for sure. Is there a particular type of, of psychological makeup that makes somebody more receptive to the kind of therapy that you're talking about? I'm talking about whether the parent or the child. You know, that's a really good question. I, I think there's got to be a little bit of, of a feeling of crisis. They've got to be teachable. Humility is, is probably the biggest thing. When parents say to me, I've tried all of this, my response is, well, then you should have peace and serenity because that's <laughs> the outcome of effective parenting, not well-behaved children. But people that have a hard time being vulnerable and being humble and being teachable, and, and I do want to say this one thing, part of what I want to get them all to embrace, and it's hard when you're not teachable, is you're not off track. This, this idea that being in my program is somehow dramatically off track, this is life. This is the lesson. And the people that come out the other end of, of our process talk about this being the best experience of their life, being richer for it. And so we have to get out of this mindset also to be teachable to say, what's happening? What is happening is what is. You know, it, it, it's, it's radical acceptance. We've got to embrace that instead of holding on to what should be happening, which gets most people stuck most of the time. You know, I want to have you go back a little bit because you talked about the the need to forget about essentially the outcome. Uh-huh. 
or forget about the yeah forget about the outcome but so talk about the the difficulties or the dangers of trying to be right in these things <laughs> well most of us that's you know that's that chapter is just about me really i had to put it in there but i think a lot of us instead of saying this is how i feel and this is what i want this is what i can tolerate in my, in my home we start trying to be right and we start trying to debate we, you know i had a father ask me years ago is it am i allowed to ask my young adult child who lives with me not to smoke pot and I said, yeah. And he said, do you have any research articles that you can share with me that, that support that? And I said, not off the top of my head. But if I gave them to you, he would come back with some counter examples from articles. And so you're never going to win. But what you can be is you. You can say, I don't want, I don't want this in my house. I don't want, if I'm a married to an alcoholic, I don't want this anymore. I don't have to be right. I just get to be me. And most of us did not grow up being allowed to feel what we felt and think and, and, and be what we are without having to defend it or justify it. And so the shift is just learning to be you and learning to stand on that scary island of just being you instead of always trying to prove it. And I fall into that trap as much as anybody that I work with. Don't need, you mean not needing to prove? Yeah, I try to prove myself. I try to be right and debate and show that I, that I have the right answer. Hmm. And that just isn't working. <laughs> My wife said, you can be right, but you're going to be alone. That's, that was one of her <laughs> early statements to me when we were dating, so it resonates with me. <laughs> that's, that's a great comment, I guess. Yeah. It's sort of a warning in a way. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you end the book with something, the, the message of hope. What, what would that be? The message of hope is that depression and anxiety or, or just a lack of serenity and pre peace and confidence for parents comes when we focus on what we can control. And the message of hope, when you change your focus to what you can do and what you can do to be a, a different parent, then you'll immediately be filled with hope. You're focusing on something that's within your control. And what I know from my own life, from my own therapy, from my own challenges as an individual and, and as a parent, is that when I change, the circumstances and situations and things outside of me start to reflect that. I, I'm around people who are treating me the way that I'm treating myself and thinking about myself and so I see that you, you've got to kind of blind yourself to it like like when you're hitting a tennis ball you don't want to aim it too much to control the outcome but you've got to trust your swing but that shift from focus from outside to inside is what creates the hope and takes away the depression and anxiety Brad Reedy the author of the journey of the heroic parent your child's struggle and the road home Brad thanks for joining us is there a website people can go to for more on this? Yeah, you can go to evoketherapy.com or drbradreedy.com. Brad, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at mrdad.com. While you're there, visit the mrdad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the mrdad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.